0: Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm one of your hosts, Margaret Kiljoy. And this week, we're going to talk about snow and ice and moving across them. And I'm probably going to ask about glaciers. And we're going to talk about all that stuff. And I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about how to move over Arctic terrain, um, which might be everywhere in the future. I mean, everything's getting warmer, but like, you know, everything's getting like wackier. So things might get different. Um, do you need crampons? I don't know. I'm going to find out. And that's what we're going to talk about. But first, we're a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's another jingle from another jingle. Here's a jingle from another show on the network. Da 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 da. The Anarchist Radio berlin From Across the Pond. It's the
1: Anarchist Radio Berlin.
0: With audios in English, Spanish and German. And please, don't mention the war.
1: You can find us at channel0network.com and aradio-berlin.org. Okay,
0: we're back. So... If you could introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and then a little bit of your background as to why I'm having you on the show.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Emil. I go by he, him, or they, them. I have a bachelor's degree in Arctic Outdoor Life and Nature Guiding from the University of Tromsø in Northern Norway, and I'm currently doing a master's degree also in Outdoor Life um, at the University of Southeastern Norway.
0: Okay, so this means that you spend your time with a sledge and fighting polar bears (laughs) and penguins. Is that correct? Uh,
1: There have been sledges and uh, polar Mm -hmm. bear guard standing involved, uh, but the penguins are on the other side of the planet, unfortunately. (laughs) We don't have penguins up here.
0: Okay. Um, Would be cool, though.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: because then you can have the polar bears and the penguins hang out and the far side comics will be complete. Um, (laughs) Okay. So yeah. So you're a, you're a guide or like, you know, so this is one of the things that you do is you take people out and, and show them how to move over this terrain and show them how to explore. Like, is this like tourists? Is this like scientists? Is this people who got lost in the snow on their way home? Like, I don't really know what I've never been in Norway. This is going to come across.
1: Yeah, no, it could be, it could be all those things. It could Mm -hmm. be, uh, guiding on, on scientific expeditions. It could be taking tourists on trips, or it could be more like, um, you know, like summer camps and, uh, things of that nature. Um, Mm -hmm. which is more like, uh, not, not as hardcore. So you have sort of, it's a broad range of sort of Mm -hmm. different levels of, uh, from, Summer camps in with kids—that's um, really sort of safe. And two the two-week-long expeditions in the Arctic, skiing, um, where you really have to sort of take care of yourself and the people around you, in a, and you have to be sort of on guard. Okay. Yeah.
0: And so I kind of want to ask you about—I mean, basically, a lot of my questions are just like, how do you move over Arctic terrain? Like, what is involved? How do you get? how do you practice like, like, is it, is everything like snowshoeing? Is it cross country skis? Is it like dogs and sleighs? Is it reindeer pulling the sleighs? Like what's, I'm making jokes, but I also know
1: <laughs> reindeer up there. Actually, actually you can, uh, you can actually do a uh, reindeer studying. I some people do that. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah really. Uh, in, uh, in, in, um, northern norway the northernmost Mm. county there is uh, a yearly reindeer sledding competition actually so that is the thing that some people do uh but it's yeah dog sledding and skiing i think are the most common for long distance if you're moving sort of in forests then snowshoes Mm. can be advantageous but if you're moving any sort of distance it's going to be um, cross-country skis or uh, we call them mountain skis they're a bit broader Mm. Um, okay. They're a bit wider than than normal like racing skis okay. uh, or dog sledding. Yeah.
0: So like for my own selfish reasons, it's unlikely that I will specifically need to be moving, um, escaping an apocalypse in Northern Norway. Like that seems not incredibly likely, but something that does like <laughs> within my own selfish, when I think about it, I'm like, well, what if I had to move over some mountains, right? Like yeah. what if, and yeah, that seems exactly. like the kind of thing that, could theoretically come up in my life or or just could be fun, right? Um, Yeah. What's involved in starting to learn that stuff? Like, both, like, how does one... Like, when you take someone out and you're like, here's some snowshoes, is it like a... Does it take people hours to figure them out? Is it, like, pretty quick? Like,
1: It's... I think it's pretty intuitive, uh, Mm -hmm. often. A lot of the outdoors um, sort of uh pedagogy or the the philosophy of learning is learning by doing. Mm-hmm. So it's getting hands-on experience and just sort of uh trying it. Obviously um putting people in an environment that's um challenging enough that they feel a sense of accomplishment and mastery but not so challenging that uh they die. <laughs> okay, that's so like it's a good yeah. way to learn, yeah. No yeah. Bad. So it's um what's involved in learning it i think i think a lot of it is does come from from childhood uh at least if you live in the north mm-hmm. um sort of something you grow up uh with but um i think it's it's kind of just like uh getting out there and then i know there's um skiing courses and stuff that you can take mm-hmm. if you want to learn um like technique
0: yeah okay well if i like had to like lord of the Rings style cross a mountain pass do yeah. i want skis or do i want snowshoes or do i want the ring of power like 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 if i'm just crossing a mountain, like obviously if i'm going to be like moving overland in the far north it would be way better if i had skis it seems to be the case yeah but like if i'm just trying to like cross a mountain pass do i need skis
1: mm, well i think it depends on the I think it's going to depend on the, on the time of year and the mm-hmm. snow depth. Okay. So you don't necessarily need skis. You can walk through the snow with just your normal shoes, not even snowshoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's probably going to be faster on skis. And additionally, you would probably want, at least if, if you're going to be out for more than a day, mm-hmm. and you're going to be out for several days, you would want, um, something called a pulka instead of a backpack. Pulka is just a okay. sled. Okay. So you pull the sled after you instead of carrying a backpack. Um, it helps with stability. You can carry more, which typically uh, winter equipment is heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it is advantageous to to pull the sled. Okay.
0: Yeah, because one of the reasons I think I think that you commented like I we posted an episode recently with a an ultralight through hiker, right? And I yeah. think that your comment was something like whoa things are different in america or something like that um and and so that's why i reached out to you so it's like i'm curious your reaction to concepts of like weight and ultralight and stuff like that and i guess when you're carrying a polka you like weight probably still matters but in a very different way
1: yeah um at least when it comes to when it comes to winter in the arctic you Mm -hmm. want equipment that's sturdy Mm -hmm. um it's Quite often, specialized equipment as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so it's on average, it's going to be a bit heavier. So, doing uh, ultralight um, isn't necessarily feasible. So, it's. I think it's going to depend on sort of the environment you're in. Um, yeah. Moving ultralight in a temperate forest, I think, is probably more feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, like in, I don't know, the, the Appalachian Trail or the parts of the PCT, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's also a thing where the Arctic environment is kind of inhospitable in the sense that there isn't a lot of available energy in the environment so if you think about walking through a temperate forest right you mm-hmm. have firewood and uh, there might be okay. some food and stuff that you can forage yeah, right so energy both in the sense of fuel for heat and in mm-hmm. the sense of calories right but yeah. if you think about moving across a snowy mountain plateau, sort of a barren. It's kind of like an ice desert. Mm-hmm. You have to carry all of that energy with you. The fuel, the gasoline, the food, everything. So okay. it's it's necessarily going to be um, heavier. Wait, what's the gasoline for? The gasoline is for stoves, for burning. Yeah. Oh, okay. Both for heating food and heating the tents.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay, so then... This is so much the thing I'm like,
1: yeah,
0: obviously the way people do this now is probably very differently from the way people did this a hundred years ago or something. Right. Like I assume that a hundred years ago, people were probably bringing like, well, actually probably they were still bringing oil stoves a hundred years ago. Actually. Now that I think that through, um, rather than yeah. like people aren't hauling their firewood, people are instead hauling like oil to burn. Is that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or, um, uh, is it paraffin? Yeah. The, um, The sort of, or like wax,
0: burnable wax, paraffin wax. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm like, I'm trying to think there's like so many things I've, i
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it it was different. Like the sleeping bags were made of reindeer skins and stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so it's probably lighter equipment now than it was a hundred years ago. I assume that's like, yeah. Um, okay. What? kills people like besides probably everything but like what is the <laughs> like what are the like main things you're worried about like if i'm like walking through the snow am i gonna like just like fall into the snow and then die like i know there's like avalanches to worry about like like i read a lot of like and then everyone went hiking and then the snow and then they all died and it was russia and people still argue about what happened to them and they all went mad uh, now i can't remember yeah there's
1: the the, uh, the aklov pass incident yeah i think it's called yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I think, was confirmed to be an avalanche. Or the the main theory now is that it was an avalanche. Okay. That then we can actually, this is actually a good um, example. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you want to explain to the audience? Because if people have no idea what we're talking about, what are we talking about?
1: Yeah, it was a, a group of people in Russia that mm-hmm. went on a hike and they all died. And mm-hmm. it's been sort of... Um, it's been sort of a mystery for quite mm-hmm. some time. What actually happened to them, right? So there's been a lot of like conspiracy theories and, and yeah. stuff. But, um, to, to the question of sort of what kills people, what killed them, the, the predominant theory now is actually a, um, I believe a combination of an avalanche and subsequent hypothermia. Okay. So there. What we believe is that their uh, tent was caved in by an avalanche, which then made everyone super wet and super cold and without shelter, mm-hmm. and so they they became hypothermic and essentially mm-hmm. became so hypothermic that and this is what happens when you become really 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 cold you start to feel warm yeah which is called the sort of it's I think it's called the hypothermia paradox right. Um, um, which is when people, towards the end, they get so cold that they feel warm, they take off all their clothes. Yeah. And then they uh, succumb to yeah. cold. Okay. And so the main, the main things to worry about, I would say, are avalanches. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're mo- moving in terrain that's steeper than 30 degrees. Mm-hmm. Or moving, uh, then that's that's sort of the avalanche zone. And then you have a zone below that where the avalanche could, the run out zone that you okay. have to worry about. Um, and then you have hypothermia, mm-hmm. of course, just being cold. And hypothermia can be a, sort of a slow and insidious killer because it, it can actually creep up on you uh, over the course of several days.
0: Yeah, and then
1: the last one yeah it can Um, and then the last one is carbon monoxide poisoning
0: oh from like burning stuff inside your tent
1: Yes, or your snow cave or whatever yeah from burning stuff inside the tent or the snow cave when you have for example a gasoline burner Mm -hmm. uh, that isn't burning properly so the flame is if the flame is yellow that Mm -hmm. means that it's an impure the the, uh it's not a it's not a complete complete combustion, uh-huh. as opposed to when the flame is blue. Um, so blue flame means less carbon monoxide. Carbon mon- monoxide is um, tasteless, colorless gas. It's a heavy gas that settles uh, below, sort of on the on the floor, um, and it takes up the place of oxygen in your blood. So your blood transports oxygen through your body. Mm -hmm. But when the uh, body takes up carbon monoxide, um, there is no more space for oxygen, essentially. The body thinks it's oxygen. And so what happens is that you actually, your brain becomes oxygen depleted. Um, You become dizzy, uh, tired. You can begin to hallucinate and just uh, generally your decision-making ability degrades.
0: You sound like you're speaking from experience.
1: I've uh, I have I have woken up one time with sort of you get these um you can get these um sort of black spots under your nose uh-huh. almost from a night of sleeping and a, yeah, Fuck. and I was okay. kind of dizzy after that day. You know? um,
0: okay, but do do you all have a like? And maybe it would be in um, Norwegian and not in English. But do you have like a like like flame is blue? That'll do. Flame is yellow. You're yellow. <laughs> like, is there like a? That's the one I just made up. But like,
1: yeah, it uh, was very good. <laughs> I don't think we do actually, we should. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, we're not that creative. Okay. You got to work. Maybe on it's that. something to do with the Norwegian language. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I, I literally don't know a word of Norwegian, so I can't, uh... <laughs> oh, that's annoying. I'm like, I usually know how to say at least like, thank you and fuck you. in like most languages.
1: Huh. You know, it's quite uh, similar, actually, because English is a, um, right. is a mix between, I think it's there's some Gaelic in it, and then there's yeah. uh, Norwegian, and Danish and Swedish, yeah. and French, right? Because of all the different groups of people that invaded England and settled there yeah. um, over the history. So it's, you say egg, I say egg. You okay. say window, I say vindu. So it's okay. quite similar.
0: Okay. How do you say? How do you say thank you? Tuck. Tuck. Okay. Oh, I think I have heard this before. Or is maybe it's similar to Swedish or something?
1: Yeah, Um, they're mutually intelligible.
0: Oh, interesting. That's good to know. My tiny Swedish. Swedes and
1: Norwegians can talk to each other.
0: Um, As everyone in the audience learns that Margaret doesn't know shit about fucking uh, Norway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know way more about Finland. Um, Okay, so. So the question then is like, okay, the why? Why do you burn stoves inside? Is it just because you you fucking need to? Because there is like, otherwise you'll freeze to death.
1: Um, you don't. So you don't necessarily need to. Mm-hmm. It does help, right? Um, it does help with especially the the form of hypothermia that's kind of creeping hypothermia mm-hmm. um, that you you get warm once a day in the evening. But you mm-hmm. and it's also like a psychological thing. Yeah. It's having warm food, knowing that you'll have warm food. It's also, well, actually, you do need to because you need. And you can't cook outside because it's too cold. Yeah. And you need, and you need, um, you need water as well. You need to melt snow to drink. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So you do actually need a burner. (laughs) You could theoretically melt snow by just putting it in a, um, some sort of a plastic, um, bottle and uh, heating it with your body heat. So keeping it close to your body yeah. while you walk. Yeah. But it's not very efficient. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, and it's also the, it's also a psychological aspect of, you know, even though I'm cold now, mm-hmm. I know that when I get to camp tonight, I will be warm. Yeah. Right. So does that mean y'all's tents? Like in my head,
0: when I think about tents in the continental US where I live, there's like, three season tents and then four season tents and four season tents are just like, honestly, they're almost like more windproof and they just have like fewer vents. Right. Um, and they're heavier and, and then there's like lighter shit, like single wall tents and little pyramid tents with no floor and all that stuff. But like, but overall you have three season and four season tents, but then I'm like aware of this thing that just is not part of my life. Cause I don't live in the North. If you ask some Southerners, I do, but, um, <laughs> But, you know, that's a political distinction and not a how much snow is there distinction. I just dropped something that scared my dog. Um, So, but then I'm aware that there's like these tents that have like stove jacks and stuff and you like can like vent out a chimney and shit. Is that like what you all are fucking with? Or are you all just basically taking the same four season tents as us and then like putting a burner in there and like hoping you get the flame right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's essentially, uh, it's essentially a four season tent. Yeah. Okay. The, so the last one you can, um, if you do, if you do dog sledding, for example, or you use mm-hmm. a snowmobile, mm-hmm. then you can do the really big, heavy duty tents with, um, what did you call it? The stove jack, the, the stove jacks. Covers. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's the chimney, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you can do that. But, uh, I think those are more used for base camps. Um, ah. Just because they're so big and heavy, okay um, so it's more of a four season tent, and then you have like you know you have an outer tent and an inner tent, okay right, so you can cook food in the outer tents, um but you can also bring the stove inside the inner tent as long as you're careful with uh all your sleeping bags and all that stuff mm-hmm. if that's squared away, you can put the you can put the stove on like a wooden plate, for example, you can just jury rig mm-hmm. that system yeah um and then if you if you then burn inside the inner tent it could be an e like easily 20 degrees celsius i don't know what that is in fahrenheit but it's like a, uh, like nice a comfortable warm. temperature yeah, yeah i want to nice say it's
0: around 70 or so um yeah let me, let me actually do this math for our listeners 68 yeah it was close yeah the the, the ideal temperature in a lot of ways exactly uh, yeah yeah Okay, because I cannot imagine bringing a stove inside my, like, the way that I grew up, you know, I mean, we would have, like, I would camp in, well, this is going to be non-mutually intelligible, I guess I'll just keep <laughs> this thing up, you know, it's like I've camped in, like, five degree f- Fahrenheit, right, Um, is, like, negative 15, that's about as cold yeah. as I've camped, and it would never occur to me to, to heat my tent Um, But I know a lot of people do do that. And then the other thing... Okay, and the other question I have is, do people use little... Like what I use in my like cabin and I use in my truck is like a little one burner, a little propane heater that's like meant for inside safeness. Do people use those? Like why, why the stove? Is that so that you have only one thing that both melts your water and keeps you warm? Or like... I'm so afraid of this carbon monoxide
1: thing. I'm just like... We need yeah, to come yeah, yeah. up
0: with something different
1: yeah <laughs> yeah no the, the carbon monoxide uh, poisoning is definitely something to be aware of yeah. But the, the the key there is to check your flame right mm-hmm. check that you have a blue flame um, okay. so you can do that by and you can improve that by like uh, when you have when you have a gasoline burner, you usually have a mm-hmm. pump to pressurize the the gas container, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to pressurize the pump to make sure that like you have a You have a blue uh, blue flame, but it's, it's, you can use um, like propane or butane, Mm -hmm. uh, but that is mostly used in the summer because when it gets cold enough, uh, those gases don't really work anymore. Are you fucking kidding me? You can get... God damn it. No. Uh no. Okay. Okay. I believe you. You can get... Yeah. yeah. I was trying to figure out why the fuck
0: you used gasoline. So this makes sense. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's it's you use gasoline because gasoline works in extremely cold temperatures. Okay. Yeah, so oh, you can get.
0: That these, like,
1: go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, no, no, you can get like uh, you can get like special special propane butane that's like can do a bit colder. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's if if it's going if it's gonna be really cold, you do want gasoline, essentially. When you say
0: really cold, I have a suspicion that we have different conceptions of how cold the world can get. Can you can you give me an example of what you're talking about? Like how cold are we talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh so butane and propane, uh mm-hmm. at least I think butane stops working at let's say I don't know, twenty I'm I'm looking at the Celsius to Fahrenheit calculator. Yeah. <laughs> twenty twenty degrees Fahrenheit, maybe it's below freezing, right? Yeah. So like a, a bit below freezing, um, the gases kind of stop working uh, as they should. Huh. But then if we're talking about really cold, my definition of like really, really cold would be mm. something like 22 below Fahrenheit, right? Yeah, That's really cold.
0: Yeah, okay. Okay. What's the coldest you've camped in? This is like, I'm just literally just curious.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it's around there. It's around yeah. um, 22 below zero in Fahrenheit terms.
0: I think that's roughly the coldest I've ever experienced in my life. And I was not camping and I'm very grateful.
1: That sort of cold really sort of um, saps the warmth out of you, right? It yeah. really kind of, you feel like your heat is being stolen by the, by the environment. You have to be constantly moving.
0: So that actually, that actually leads to one of the other questions I have about all of this. I like whenever I read about people in Antarctica or Arctic or something, it talks about like, cause in my head, you know if you're cold you put on more layers but i'm aware of this thing where like if you're hiking and like climbing and doing all this shit you kind of can't just do that because then you like sweat and die like yeah what kind of clothing like what what do you need clothing wise to go on an arctic expedition in the winter
1: right so you want um you want wool as your Mm -hmm. base layer Mm -hmm. it's also i think in english it's referred to as a wicking layer yeah because it it yeah it dries um it basically tr- um takes the the moisture away from your body right and it's also uh wool is also warm when it gets wet or warmer yeah. than cotton for example yeah so you want uh you want wool as a base layer and then maybe you want uh if it's really cold you might have a second woollen layer okay and then a jacket you can have if you're if you're standing still or you're in camp you can do uh down jacket. Um when you're walking it's quite common to use just like um like a shell mm-hmm. jacket, shell pants, um, that are windproof and and waterproof, but but that's what you're walking in. Mm-hmm. Um and also it's a constant sort of it's a constant adjustment where you're uh putting on and taking off layers mm-hmm. as you're walking as well uh quite often. Um, so if you're, if you're walking up, if you sort of, you've been walking flat and then you come to sort of a, a pass that you have to climb or a mountain that is like a steep hill, you might take off a layer as well. You have to be adjusting. Okay. Um, but to the, to the sweat thing, like, um, yes, no sweating is, I like the ideal, um, situation is to be dry, but you are going to sweat like i and i think sort of uh the whole if you sweat you die thing is kind of overblown um, okay as long as you can dry and that's another reason why you would want um a stove in your tent so you can dry your clothes in the evening
0: uh okay okay um it does is we say cotton kills because it's alliterative is it alliterative in norwegian also or no
1: yeah, I mean, you can... Yeah, I think so, yeah.
0: Okay, because that's mm. that's one of the phrases I learned when I was very young about not wearing cotton as cotton kills. Um, although that is a little bit with the, like, everything will murder you theory. Although it sounds like in the Arctic, more <laughs> things will actually murder you um, than usual. But, all right, well, I feel like I could talk about this for the whole hour, but there's a bunch of other stuff I want to talk to you about. And one of the questions I have is, as... I read a lot of stuff about climate change and one of the main things that it talks about is like the the, the disappearing ice and the like the impact this is having on the polar areas of the world. And, and that is completely uh, hypothetical in my head, right? Um, I've only seen a glacier with binoculars. Um, on the other hand, I would have seen a lot more glaciers in Glacier National Park if I'd been there 20 years earlier. So clearly this is an impact, but how has it like, what does it look like on the ground for climate change? Yeah,
1: I can give you two examples. Um, okay. one example is from Svalbard, which is mm-hmm. a Norwegian owned archipelago. Um, it's North of Iceland and East of Greenland. It's quite close to the North pole, okay. um, where I spent, uh, a year, mm-hmm. um, doing, uh, an Arctic nature guide course. Mm-hmm and on Svalbard the thing is it's it Svalbard does have polar bears cool right uh, and polar bears are classified as marine mammals for a reason it's that mm-hmm. they spend a lot of time out on the ice mm-hmm. right hunting seals that's seals are what they eat and with the warming climate uh, Svalbard is actually one of the warmest or the fastest warming places on earth it has been okay. it's it's warmed i think 4 degrees celsius for the past or over the past 50 years okay so since the 1970s that's 4 degrees right yeah. we're talking about the global average of 1, 1. 1.5 yeah celsius so so that gives you a sense of of the 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 scale of warming yeah um in the in the north in the arctic um heating up really quickly. And so one of the things that happens is because the, the ice is melting, the um, mm-hmm. sea ice, polar bears are increasingly hungry and uh, losing their sort of winter habitat, right? So they're more on the archipelago itself instead of out on the sea.
0: Are you leading up to they attack more people? Is that what's happening? Yeah. yeah. Oh,
1: fuck. They oh, no. Because
0: are... then people shoot yeah. them and then they die exactly okay please continue sorry
1: (laughs) yeah no that's what's happening so the they're they're um there's two things right they're hungrier Mm -hmm. and they are in the same place as people are yeah right and so Mm -hmm. they it's it's increasing the polar human conflict is increasing Mm -hmm. because there there are more polar bears coming into camp um and they're hungrier so they're more motivated to find food right mm-hmm. so so that's uh, which is again sort of exacerbating the loss of number of polar bears right yeah so it's kind of a, like a, it's a double whammy yeah uh, it's both the climate and then the climate is uh impacting human polar bear relations if you to yeah. put it that way Okay so and then I have another okay, example yeah, as well. Yeah yeah.
0: Then I'm going to ask you about fighting polar bears. Okay, yeah.
1: Awesome. So uh in northern Norway, um the only um the only indigenous uh people in in sort of western Europe is is uh is in northern Norway and Sami people. So yeah. Norway, Sweden, Finland, Russia. Mm-hmm. And one of the sort of uh main components of sami culture at least today as we know it today is reindeer herding mm-hmm. right and so what happens and the reindeer eat moss from the ground also in the winter time and so what happens is when the winters get warmer you have more of these um freeze uh, these uh what do you call it like oh, where it cycles it
0: freezes again yeah yeah
1: exactly exactly it melt freeze cycles
0: ah right right, which creates
1: ice yeah which makes it more difficult for the reindeer to find food because they have to kick through the ice layer to get to the moss and so this is impacting um indigenous livelihoods as well yeah i wanted to bring that up too
0: yeah no no that's that's it's absolutely worth bringing up and then i think that one of the things about this melt freeze cycle i was talking with one of my friends who lives in canada who like has like uh in rural Canada where it's snow more than half the year, which is not my experience. And where I live, it could snow, you know, in three or four months of the year. And I, it seems when, you, when you're somewhere where it like where I live, where it constantly melts and freezes, it seems like a nightmare to have nine months of snow. It seems unlivable, right? I'm like, how does anyone do it? And I was having a long conversation with my friend about it. And one of their main points was that, like, it stays snow. And so it's navigable um, in a way that like, you know, when it snows here, the road is fine because I have a big truck. But the next day it's fucked because the next day the sun has melted enough of it and then it's frozen overnight. And then like, and if more snow falls, it's snow on top of ice and then it's just like the roads are just fucked, you know? So I just, it's interesting to think about that also, fucking up moss and fucking up, it makes sense, but I don't know. Okay, my other, okay, I have two questions about all this. One is, is it just heartbreaking to like actually visually see more of this happening? Like, cause we have like, oh, the weather's really fucking weird. And we have a few more like disasters, right? But I'm not watching permafrost melt. I'm not watching glaciers recede. I'm not watching the place that I go. Like, not trying to like bum you out, but I'm like, how do you, how do you cope?
1: You know, it's, it's difficult. Um, I think, I, I don't think I have a good answer for you. Yes, it is depressing. Right. Um, and so I think, uh, one coping mechanism could be just taking that sort of sorrow and anger and putting it towards political action. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's sort of, I think that's what I'm doing. Um also just like getting really mad at politicians, just going around thinking yeah. all day like fucking prime minister, fuck you, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you could just you could just be angry. It's okay to just be angry, you know? Yeah. Um that's that's fine. But uh yeah, no, it 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 is I, I think especially for the people who live in these landscapes and have their lives and livelihoods intimately connected to these landscapes. Yeah. Um, it's, we think of climate change as an existential threat in the abstract, but for them it's already sort of in their lives, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I do think it's, it's, it's closer kind of, it's not just on TV. It's, it's, in this valley you're moving yeah. through, you know?
0: Yeah. And having it be different every year, probably every year that you're going to it. Okay. Well, that brings me to my other it doesn't actually, but my other question from what you were all just what you were just saying. All right. So how do you fight polar? like like you're saying that it increases the, <laughs> the like conflict. And so it's like two questions. Like one is like, I'm sort of aware I'm gonna get some of this wrong. I know how to deal with black bears because they're black bears where I live, which is that you have to like stand up to them right? You'd be like, Hey, fuck you, black bear. I'm bigger than you, which is like a lie. Right. But they're like, ah, all right, whatever. And they fuck off. And it's like sketchy. And it like confuses me that I have friends who do this on a regular basis who are like forest defenders, you know? Um, and I've only had to do it like a handful of times in my life and let it stay that way. That would be great. Uh, and then we have like grizzly bears are like the biggest thing that we worry about. Right. Because like, and I don't worry about them cause I don't live in Alaska. Um, but like, but polar bears are like, like, like they're like mythical to me right they're like oh you know there's bears and then there's like dire bears which are grizzly bears and then there's dragons there's just dragons in the north and that's the polar bears they're this like mythical fucking thing and so the concept of like like i've stood guard for bears or like when you have a forest defense camp in the pacific northwest people have to do bear duty where they sit around and like uh for rocks at bears who are trying to come into camp and shit right um but I can't imagine what that is like with polar bears. I want like a fucking palisade and like, like spotlights and like helicopters and shit. Like, like what is the, how do you deal with polar bears?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So um, I think it's, it's much the same way that you deal with other kinds of bears. The only thing is that, I mean, polar bears can be really, really persistent. I, I believe they're the only the only bear species that is known to actively hunt humans in emergencies.
0: (laughs) Uh I mean, it makes sense. They're a lot bigger than us. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's yeah, but it's actually, it's, it's only in emergencies, but because it's, um, it's a caloric loss project for them. The reason they eat seals is because seals are so fatty and fat has more than twice the amount of calories per, per, um, per pound. Mm -hmm. than than carbohydrates and protein so like most of us aren't as fat as a seal so it's uh they they don't do it unless they absolutely have to um but you do when you're out in 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 a big group you do polar guard Mm -hmm. right um whenever you had have camp twenty four seven, that means Getting out of your comfortable, warm sleeping bag where mm-hmm. you're snug uh, at three o'clock at night mm-hmm. and going out for an hour, grabbing the rifle and, and standing guard from, from three to four, right? Uh-huh. In the, at middle of night or in the early morning hours. But, uh, you do, you have, um, s- some sort of signal flare usually mm-hmm. that is, um, for scaring the bear away. Okay. So you can have, uh, it's, it's, it's like, um, it's like a small explosive fired out of a, out of a, a flare gun that mm-hmm. it's just like a flashbang, uh, essentially, right? It, it's okay. a really big, loud boom. Okay. And then you also carry, uh, a rifle. Usually you can also, some people carry magnums. Mm-hmm. Um, I right. have seen, yeah, I have Magnum seen Glocks for thing. sale.
0: Okay. Yeah. Right, yeah. No.
1: Right. By, by Magnum, I mean like a a forty four Magnum revolver.
0: Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um. A nine millimeter. I have seen some Glocks for sale. That's not mm-hmm. really going to be very effective. No. Uh, you need a big round, like a three oh eight. There's ten there? millimeter Glocks.
0: Yeah, and they're like, I mean, actually, for grizzlies and for black bears, you're you're better off instead of a gun, you're better off with bear spray. It's just like statistically more effective at deterring a bear is to get sprayed yeah. with spray, than to get shot uh i don't know about polar bears but like but i know that 10 millimeter is a round that is often carried by people who are in alaska or are in places where like big fucking game is like a thing that they worry about you know um anyway i didn't mean to cut you off i'm just like yeah geeking out about it so, so the rifle that you're carrying is 308
1: yeah usually 308 sometimes 30 oh. odd six Springfield usually three or eight winchester, that's yes. kind of the standard, and then some people carry um essentially like big big handguns as well uh, okay. it's It's lighter to carry a revolver, but yeah. obviously it has sort of like less range and stuff, but it's less it's dif- more difficult to shoot a pistol than a rifle
0: yeah,
1: but I have to say it's it's um uh shooting a polar bear is not something that you should do <laughs> it's uh, they're an endangered species it's actually yeah. it's illegal. Yeah. Um, it's illegal to uh, shoot a polar bear in Norway. The hunting was um, banned in the 70s. So okay. when you yeah. shoot a polar bear on Svalbard in self-defense, it's treated as um, essentially like a murder case.
0: But ah, you just like prove you,
1: self-defense. You, you prove self-defense, essentially. Yeah. Um, so that's that's very important to add, that it, it is a like a last resort.
0: Yeah. Do people use bear spray for polar bears or just not? You can, you can use bear spray as well, yeah. but
1: um, I think the effective range of bear spray is so short that yeah. sort of people might not be comfortable with letting the bear get that close. That's fair.
0: I mean, I don't want to get that close to i I've, I've, I've only seen a grizzly once, and it was through binoculars, and I was like, this rules. This is the right distance. I'm so happy I got to see a grizzly yeah. bear. It is checked <laughs> off the list. Okay. All right, so that's how you defend yourself against polar bears. Uh, how common? I mean, you're saying this, Valbard, it's it's becoming more and more common, but it's like, is this a like, like? Is there places where like bears are like raccoons? You know, they're just like kind of everywhere. Um, but I assume that that's just like kind of not the case because they're pretty endangered.
1: Yeah, not not quite like raccoons, but uh, they're quite common. Um, I think. The usual line about Svalbard is, uh, you know, the the archipelago with more polar bears than people, um, okay. which has which has a, a degree of truth to it. It's just that the polar bears are also distributed around the sea ice, around the around the island group, right? So yeah. it's two thousand five hundred people, and they reckon around three thousand polar bears. Okay. Um, so it's it's quite common, quite yeah. common. It's not unusual to see a bear. Okay. Um but I didn't see one. <laughs> cool. Okay, fair enough. I'm like, I wanna go.
0: I like I've never been up where the sun doesn't actually set. I've been like close, you know? Um well actually I've done the opposite. I've been in the far north in the summer and had like uh, two AM twilight. Yeah. Um and I love it's it. It's so weird.
1: Like, it's like a su- super strange experience coming out of a nightclub at like 4 a.m. And then the sun is just like yeah. shining straight in your face. Like, no, I'm tired. <laughs> I want to go to sleep. All the, all the, like all the birds are circling around you and fucking making ungodly yeah. noises. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a surreal experience. I mean, yeah. oh, it's, I've been partying all night and it's like, it's bright as day now. <laughs> you
0: yeah. Know? No, that. Yeah, I'd feel betrayed. I'd be like, yeah i I like it, but I, I don't know how I would handle it if I like lived there. I like, I like, I like that I get to experience that every now and then. And I don't know how I would handle the, you know, how I don't know how many days of night it is, but you know, the sun not coming up thing. Um, but okay. One of the other things that you mentioned that you wanted to talk about, and I got really excited about was how so you spend a lot of your time in the outdoors you spend a lot of your time guiding people and like and working with groups of people in dangerous and complicated situations um and i want to ask you about the decision making in, in that kind of environment and leadership structures and also you know specifically how this led you towards more thinking about non-hierarchical organizing and anarchism and stuff like that um what what was that like for you or what's that, what is that like?
1: Yeah. So in my, during my studies, I've, um, I've been outside, I've been working with a lot of different groups of, Mm -hmm. uh, especially fellow students. And one of the things that struck me is that the, when we were out on trips, especially like study trips, all of the, all of the decision-making was remarkably sort of consensus based. Mm -hmm. um rarely was there sort of a clear leader it didn't really feel natural to have a clear leader when we were uh when we had differing opinions about which route to take we would usually sort of discuss Mm -hmm. and people kind of fall into um sort of organization or a structure where people just sort of Take up tasks that they see need doing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cool. And things just kind of work themselves out. And it's also, now, it is nice when you have this sort of uh, structure to have sort of um, evening talks that are, mm-hmm. for example, after dinner, we have half an hour of like daily feedback, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you do this day what is there anything that's you know bothering you annoying you um i think i think actually the the um, the Kurds have something similar um yeah. i don't remember the name it's called tekmil the... tekmil yeah exactly yeah. it's so we kind of had our own like daily tekmil yeah. when we uh when we were out on hikes yeah um and so this experience Really, I think is, is one of the things that sort of pushed me towards anarchism, towards like the idea of, um, non-hierarchical, uh, social organization or like self-organizing. Um, because I see that it works even in sort of demanding contexts because the outdoors can be quite demanding. You're, yeah. you're like you're tired, cold, wet. And yet still just with like a bit of, a bit of work, a bit of like, good effort it like it works and it works well
0: yeah i i love hearing this because i like things that fit my presupposition about how the world works but specifically it's like because it's the opposite of what everyone says everyone always says like oh you can do consensus when it's like no stakes but as soon as you're like in the backwoods and you need a like guy with like big muscles to be like no we got to go this way then like everyone will just naturally It's just really cool to be like, this makes sense to me. They're like, oh, which route do we take? We should figure this out, not listen to what the captain says. Like we should actually listen to everyone and come to conclusions because this is all of our lives on the line. And there are a bunch of people who like know what they're doing. So we should ask all of them and figure it out. This makes complete sense to me, but it's completely the opposite of what everyone always says about this kind of situation. Yeah.
1: I have to say there are Mm -hmm. like, there are specific situations Mm -hmm. that are that when, when the risks are extremely high, when you're in an emergency, for example, uh, if there's been an avalanche, Mm -hmm. it does make sense to have like one person coordinating the whole thing.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Right. Or, or, um, yeah, same thing if. Like hypothetically, this is this is not mm-hmm. just outdoors, but like if you're being shot at, if you're like in a group yep. of people and you're like taking fire, right? Yeah, yeah. It makes sense to have like one person who kind of whose job it is to 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 keep their head on a swivel and kind of figure out what's going on and make some decisions yeah. because because it needs to happen quickly, right? Yeah. Same no, thing as someone sense. stuck in an avalanche, but yeah. other than those sort of extreme situations, yeah, right then it, it consensus works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And okay. And I actually really like that you point this part out too. Cause I think a lot about like when you're in a situation where someone's been grievously injured, uh, yeah, the medic is in charge and the medic can tell everyone what to do and you just fucking do it, you know? And exactly. like, yeah. And that makes sense. Like this yeah. person's bleeding out. You go get me towels or I, I don't, you don't need towels. Yeah. situation. you're not going like to spend whatever.
1: ten minutes like discussing what to do and figuring right. out a plan together because by that time right. the person's already dead. Right, and so that that actually
0: does make a lot of sense to me. And then you have like basically these roles are filled based on the people who are most capable of doing them. Like the person who's been in a bunch of firefights. Like, yeah, maybe when we're planning the overall strategy, we listen to the people who have the most strategic knowledge. But it's still we figure it out together. But yeah, like, no, if someone's shooting at me and someone's like, you go there, shoot back, you do this, you do that. Like, I, I, I do like, to me, that's like almost like a, it's like the like exploding brain of anarchism, like the bigger and bigger steps of it is being like, oh no, sometimes you let people tell you what to do. Like yeah. sometimes that's part yeah. of being a part of a function. Yeah, the meme. Group. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. um. And okay. And the other thing that I like about it too, is that you're talking about like, okay, you have your, your conversations you have every evening and it's this balance because you're talking about how everyone kind of takes these roles they're like oh what needs doing and then does it but then part of it is structured and so it's this like mix of organic it's like chaotic and structured all at the same time
1: you know i really like yeah that. That sounds yeah. cool and it's not just i mean you can have you can have i think social structure without mm-hmm. hierarchy right yeah yeah. So you can, so I, th- I mean, for me, hierarchy kind of implies a, um, kind of implies violence and coercion, right? Yeah. But structure, social structure doesn't necessarily, um, imply violence. Social yeah. c- structure can just be sort of something that emerges by itself and which can then be discussed in these evening conversations, for example. So if a person yeah. sort of, naturally falls into the role of cook Mm -hmm. for the group. Right? That can be a form of social structure that just kind of emerges. Uh, But if that person isn't happy in that role, it also helps to have these sort of regular scheduled conversations where those sort of things can be discussed, right? And maybe we want to um maybe they want to do something different the next day. Or like maybe we can like switch tasks. Yeah. uh, Right. And so, but this actually comes to something that I think is, is um, sort of important here. And it's that the outdoors is actually a fantastic arena for forming social connections and, and group sort of bonds and yeah. also political, and also uh, like within political groups. Like there's a reason why in the 20th century, outdoor activities outdoor recreations like the scouts and those types mm-hmm. of stuff but that 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 type of stuff um was actually taken up by by like all the mass political movements yeah. uh socialists and communists and anarchists and fascists yeah also used the outdoors as like an arena right yeah but uh, i think as as the uh because it it, it works really well um but as the our societies have sort of neoliberalized and individualized and kind of also depoliticized in a way, mm-hmm. I think that sort of the outdoors as a political arena, that idea has sort of faded away. And I think actually there's, uh, for us as anarchists, that's something that we can um, kind of take back. We can use the outdoors as like, uh, a fantastic place to like get to know each other and to practice anarchism um to yeah. form uh good bonds um and to just train and it's it's also just like fun it's a nice thing to do this
0: i'm really excited by this idea that makes so much sense to me i think about like i mean one like literally being in boy scouts is a very formative experience for my life right and i like go back to the stuff i learned there constantly and i was only in there for a couple of years because then i got like too cool Um, and like, you know, quit or whatever. And, and then, yeah, like, as I read about social movements in the 20th century, I read about, you know, um, the hiking clubs in, in Weimar area, Germany, that the communists, the fascists and the anarchists all did things with, and the like wild queer kids who didn't really have a political label would also go do. And like, um, yeah. And then the Spanish anarchists had, uh, sports clubs as a huge part of what they were doing no this is really interesting to me and then because even when you're describing all this stuff because i've been getting more and more into hiking and um and one of the and when you're talking like one of the reasons i want to ask about all the arctic stuff is like not because i really think that there's like a really good chance that i'm going to have to move over mountains personally right but knowing how feels like really useful to me and interesting to me and then also like going out and practicing and learning seems like fun you know um and a good way to like and even okay when I was talking about when I was asking you how to cope with climate change one of the things that I've been doing and it I don't know whether it's like good or not but it's been working a little bit for me is to kind of embrace seeing more and like experiencing more and not necessarily just like tourist and traveling but like literally just hiking around where I live and just like feeling the spring you know like getting out and being like spring is here this winter was weird. We had a really dry, warm winter here. The west coast of the US had the exact opposite. Um, you know, but like being like, okay, how is this spring different than last spring? I want to be able to start really building that and and being like, well, if this is the last bits of the earth being like this, let's fucking enjoy it. Let's Yeah. Let's let's do it. I this agree show, completely. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of the things where i think a lot of people because being outdoors we've talked a lot about the practical and a little bit about the political mm-hmm. it also has an existential dimension yeah right people go outdoors to feel a sense of peace or time for reflection or to get into there's a particular rhythm to mm-hmm. um to hiking for example um and it's it's it also has a spiritual aspect actually for a lot of people yeah totally right So you can, what some people experience is that like, as they spend time outdoors, they feel a sense of sort of connection or a being in place, um, feeling like a part of a, um, a network of relations, right. To the landscape around them, to the flora and the fauna. And from that can actually emerge a kind of animism as well. Yeah. Like if, I, if I'm if i wandering alongside a river, for example, in a valley, let's say, mm-hmm. and I'm fantasizing, I'm starting to think about this river as sort of having a life or like having a life force. That's sort of an animistic thought. And it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that, and it sort of arises naturally, I think.
0: And it yeah. doesn't
1: mean that I literally think that the river has a consciousness, for example, but it's, yeah. um, it's an expression of this idea that this river in this valley is like central to a sort of network of relations. It's, it's, uh, thinking ecologically. So yeah. I think getting in touch with that side of things as well can, can be, um, really, you talked about how to cope with, yeah. Or you asked about how to cope with like climate grief. Yeah. I think I think just sort of getting in touch in that way can be yeah. a way to to or it's just like getting close, you know, to the to the landscape, to this network of relations. I think that can be a really sort of valuable personal experience and also an experience that you can have in groups, but perhaps Wandering alone would be like the best yeah. way to, to, like get that.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel like that might be a good note to end on for people to reflect on. And yeah, I guess I want to say thank you so much for coming on. And do you have anything that you want to want to plug or like either your own work or work of people that's around you that you want to draw attention to anything like that?
1: Um, let me think. Oh yeah. So I, I mean, thank you so much for having me. It's yeah. been a pleasure. I think I don't have anything to plug personally, but um sort of on the last note that we mm-hmm. were on, I would um direct people towards a book called Becoming Animal okay. and Earthly Cosmology okay. by an American author called uh David Abram. Okay. He writes beautifully about uh, he takes a phenomenological perspective for those who know what that is and he writes beautifully about exactly what we've been talking about now sort of getting in touch with this network of relations okay yeah I think that's that's what I would point people towards
0: fuck yeah I like that I like that your plug is a book that makes me happy I mean I haven't read the book yet um, but now I'm going to check it out all right well Thank you so much, and uh, I'm probably gonna at some other point have you on to ask more questions about how to walk over frozen lakes.
1: That would be awesome, and also glaciers. We didn't touch on glaciers. That was one of my
0: questions. I didn't. Yeah, I know, I know. All right. Well, we'll have to we'll have to have you back. But
1: yeah, thank you so much. I, I would I would love to be back. Yeah, it would be so mm-hmm. nice.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell people about the show. Tell people about it on the internet. Or in real life. Or in the Arctic, which is part of real life, believe it or not. If you want to support us more directly, you can do so by supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash strangers in the tangled wilderness, because this podcast is produced by Strangers in the Tangled Wilderness. We are a collective that publishes anarchistic culture stuff. Fiction, essays, memoir podcasts obviously podcasts there's this podcast there's another podcast called strangers in the Tangled wilderness there's another one called anarcho geek power hour and there'll hopefully be another one this soon too that you all can hear and if you support us on patreon we will send you all kinds of stuff in the mail as a thanks every month and also some of you will thank directly in fact we're going to thank hoss the dog mckea Chris, Sam, Kirk, Eleanor, Jennifer, Starrow, Cat J, Chelsea, Dana, David, Nicole, Mickey, Paige, S J, Sean, Hunter, Theo, Boise Mutual Aid, Milica, Papa Runa, Ally, Paige, Janice, and Odell, Oxalis, and Jans. Thank you all so much, and I hope everyone is doing as well as you can. And hopefully, I will talk to you soon while we're trying to convince the polar bears that they're on the same side as us, and that. Together we can destroy the thing that's destroying the world together, us and the polar bears.